0: This is episode number 13 with Chief Data Scientist at WBC HealthCare, Damian Mingle. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Hello and welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today we have a unique episode because we have a very special guest, Damian Mingle. Damian is the chief data scientist at WPC Healthcare, but not only that, he is also a speaker, an author, and he has been ranked in the top 1% of data scientists across the whole world by Kaggle. That's right, today we have one of the top data scientists in the world on our show. How great is that? But what is even more important is that Damien, in his day-to-day role, uses data science to save people's lives. In this podcast episode, we'll discuss a case study where Damien and his team came up with a model that can predict sepsis even before people see a doctor, and that is a life-changing Thing that data science can do because when people come into the emergency room, if they happen to have sepsis, every hour counts. People can die very quickly from sepsis, and sometimes in emergency rooms, you have to wait for a long time. And therefore, Damien's data science model literally saves lives. And on top of that case study and other case studies, which we cover off in this episode, we talk about many other interesting things. We talk about how Damien builds models with 95% accuracy rates how to use ensemble methods, how to combine quantitative data science investigations and analytics with qualitative uh, research findings of doctors and other medical practitioners. We'll talk about how to combine quantitative data science analytics and qualitative domain knowledge to come up with very, very powerful models. We'll talk about the tools that Damien uses. He'll give us his opinion on Python versus R And also, Damien will share with you his vision for the future of data science, which I personally found very eye-opening, and it will give you some ideas of where you can focus your career next. And I can't wait for you to listen to this super high-profile, yet not complicated episode. Damien really went that extra mile to break down the complex and make it simple. And without further ado, I bring to you Damien Mingle, Chief Data Scientist at WPC Healthcare. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, you won't believe uh, who is on the show. With me, I have a very special guest, Damian Mingle uh, from WPC Healthcare in Tennessee. Hello, Damian. How are you today?
1: Hey there. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, so, Damian, for those of you who don't know, Damian is uh, the uh, head data scientist at W or chief data scientist at WPC Healthcare, which is an organization which combines data and healthcare. And also Damien is ranked uh in the top one percent globally by Kaggle as a data scientist. Um Damien, very great to have you on the show today. Could you tell us a little bit about uh what WPC Healthcare is all about?
1: Sure, absolutely. We um at the end of the day, uh, in healthcare, we are interested mostly in assisting in the clinical side of the house, financial side, and the operational side. Um, so it's really more in the comprehensive aspect of that, so not necessarily just one component of those three, but actually trying to bring all that together, and we do that uh, using data integration and data science.
0: Uh, very interesting. And so uh, is this like a just a medical facility that uh, treats uh, patients or like so are you more of a B2C company or do you work with other uh, clinics as well and you supply the data to other clinics?
1: Right. That's a good question. So we actually work with uh, hospitals or acute setting and then post-acute setting. So the kind of the sickest of the sick uh, and specific like skilled nursing facilities, uh, things like that. We also work with groups that bundle services together, like an anesthesiologist group maybe. Um, So we do work in, in those areas and we've been seeing, so it's mainly on the healthcare provider side. However, uh, over the years, it's been increasingly becoming more interesting on the payer side. So, the insurance, health insurance, uh, has it been become more interested in the in our approach and how we're solving a lot of these healthcare problems.
0: Oh, very interesting! Definitely, how um, insurance would be interested to get more data to create the policies policies more correctly, I would imagine. And um, what about your role? What is uh, your role as the chief data scientist at WPC Healthcare?
1: So it's it's kind of interesting. Uh I kind of wear all hats and 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 that's okay with me. I mean um uh, I do everything from uh you know creating visualizations, trying to basically build context for an end user. Um I might create targets, so it might be that we're trying to blend some data sets together. And I kind of get into okay this is how we would we would create this variable so we can create a model around it. We do the mo- I do the modeling aspect um and also um more and more these days I'm crafting uh write ups, doing presentations uh or publications, and it probably has a lot to do with the amount of time that I'm spending more and more in front of the client, so we've had to I've had to leverage technology quite a bit so that I can be kicking off models in the morning, letting them compute while I'm in a meeting, and then come back and reviewing results and that sort of thing. Um, but it, in that's that's really my day-to-day. Uh, we have a few uh, people on our team here, some PhDs and such, um, that contribute wildly to our our success. Uh, and it's always fun to kind of get trapped uh, in about a, you know in a room for about an hour and just have a good think tank kind of conversation um, so that's kind of my my role here um, we're just in charge of really trying to extract knowledge out of the data for our clients
0: mmm that, that's fantastic and I was, I was about to say that uh, that sounds like a lot of work for one person uh, and uh, you must have a team how big is your team
1: we have probably I mean hardcore data scientists I would say two other besides myself Um, There are other aspects of that where we might offload some of the data munging uh, to our more technical side, um, and there are three people there. Uh, We also have some domain experts for various things. So the fortunate thing for me is I have this kind of core team, but I'm able to kind of put my hands on other people in other departments and really kind of grow my team pretty quickly if I need to on a particular problem.
0: That's very nice to have that flexibility. And at the same time, uh, people are not uh, just left doing nothing. They're just ad hoc doing uh, data science when when it's needed. Very, very interesting. And uh, could you give us a couple of examples of um, what kind of data science do you do? Like I'm assuming mostly it's modeling or some machine learning. Uh, Could you give us some examples, please?
1: Right. So uh, we might have um, uh, a situation where a client says, I'm really interested in scheduling uh, for make sure I have the right amount of coverage. And primarily because they may have um, as needed consultants that fill a gap uh, for a particular healthcare provider. And so it's really important uh, if they call too late in the day or if they call um, too late in the process, they actually have to pay a premium so to kind of know in advance is a real it really impacts the bottom line so scheduling kind of sounds humdrum but the the interesting aspect of it is when our team was able to look at it we actually came back with the client said listen what about if we just don't look at scheduling but what if we started to bring in quality of care as a component as well and so being able to say when we schedule something we're not just scheduling for people to cover shifts But we're also doing some matchmaking between, let's say, some uh, CRNAs and anesthesiologists. If they are known to be better teammates and create a better quality outcome for a person, uh, we want to schedule for that uh, firstly. And so uh, that's kind of a unique application uh, of of what we do. Um, In other aspects, I mean, there's financial impacts uh, through just the financial revenue cycle side of the house. Uh, there's, uh, we mentioned operational. We have um, uh, sepsis or condition awareness for people as they come into facilities. That's a really interesting uh, application of machine learning. Many of the rural hospitals that we work with, they just don't have the technical capability uh, to be able to pull off anything other than, just let me turn it on. Uh, and it's just a resource constraint that they have. So. Uh, Being able to do everything from building the model to actually, when someone comes into a facility, have that data exchange with us real-time and score a patient before a doctor, maybe, uh, and then provide that information through, like, secure text or secure email. It really takes machine learning from the back office or some sort of visualization presentation layer and actually says it's useful. And uh, it's very exciting for all of our clients.
0: Yeah, totally can see how that would be valuable, especially for uh, patients coming in when they are greeted with you know the right people that will deliver the right value and their treatment is expedited. That's uh, very uh, powerful. And I actually watched one of your videos online about your, with your presentation on the West Nile virus and how you created a predictive model to predict in um, which areas of a city, I I forget, I think uh, Chicago, Chicago yeah. that's right, how the mosquitoes which had this virus were spreading over the years. That was very interesting. Could you um, talk us through a little bit on that application of machine learning?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, just from a business kind of high level uh, city, state, government type scenario. Um, The process for them right now is they just didn't know uh, where to spray. I mean, they had mosquito traps set um, because they had had an issue, like many states and uh, government do. And uh, they would literally just collect those and see if there was a West Nile was present in a mosquito trap. If it was, they would know this area has an issue. And so this would be an area that we would kind of uh, generally spray. Except that mosquitoes are kind of one of those crazy things to try to monitor and watch. I mean, um, they travel really, really well because a lot of times uh, the bird is a vector for transport. So when a bird's taking a little bit of a bath, a little bit of a dip, a mosquito might actually see that as food and the bird may transfer this to another area. I mean, in my area, you'll you hear a lot of times the birds fly south for the winter. So, you have a lot of New York or Chicago area, they're going down to Florida and those sort of things. So, it's kind of interesting to see how nature kind of works. It's really, really interesting to try to model things uh, in a natural environment. Um, So, for us, uh, that was really uh, a great exploration exercise to see how other data, in addition to what was seen as the obvious data, uh, obvious data was I've collected this many. uh, observations from a mosquito trap, and combining it with data f- uh, from weather, from humidity, from rain, from you know what the temperature is—all this sort of stuff—and and trying to come up with many many features from those interactions, and then also trying to figure out you know subspace in the features, figure out which ones blend well together uh, to create a kind of a super model. So in the end. You know, if random is 50 50, meaning I don't exactly know where I need to spray this mosquito spray, but I'm spraying it. Uh, we were we were in the in the mid 80s on that, which was uh, pretty pretty powerful.
0: Wow, that's that's a very impressive uplift. And uh, also, yeah, like you say, um, trying to model uh, nature or natural phenomena in uh, data science is always very interesting and what kind of uh, techniques did you use in this specific case if you're able to disclose that information
1: yeah so a lot of it is uh just trying to understand um what interactions occur on the data so for us i mean um if you take uh information gain just what's the mutual information uh kind of the uncertainty in a field and you take all those variables in general in that case you know what are their what are the top 10 Right, so if I take the top ten and I start thinking about combinations. That's kind of a two to the n scenario. So it's about a, it's a little over a thousand uh, combinations, and so trying to figure out and model each subset of those or you know subspace of those is really it takes some time. Uh, but if you use distributed computing, it can actually uh, collapse the time quite a bit. Um, and then trying to figure out how to ensemble those models so I'm a huge fan of diversity so not only in uh, everybody starts with the same data for the most part unless you get into kind of in the wild kind of uh, real world setting but like in these Kaggle competitions and such everybody starts with the same data set so you have to figure out a way to kind of diversify away from that and a lot of times it's subsetting the data so I want Uh, percents of a total column, Uh, and I want to create new data sets to create new models. And sometimes it is uh, subspace with the features. I want to take feature two, four, and nine, and I want to see what that does. And I literally try to model in a way that um, I grow the data to see if it's a learning model versus just kind of a memorizing model. So I might take 16%, then 32%, then 64%. If the model, if like validation or cross-validation, or in some cases the holdout is going up continually, that's a good thing. If it's going down, it's scary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that's the first example would be a learning model, is that correct?
1: That's right. Okay, and uh,
0: a memorizing model would be one where adding more data doesn't really help.
1: That's it. That's exactly
0: right. That's a very interesting... Uh, distinction and um, yeah so testing for that so what would you do if if it's not a learning model if it's a memorizing model when you say it's a scary situation
1: yeah so in those situations I would pretty much discard that model and what I mean that model it's usually a model family Uh, I mean, there's a number of things, you know, the kind of the out of the box algorithms, if you will, Uh, XGBoost, for example, or Random Forest, or some of the, you know, extra trees, those sort of things. I'm a big fan of uh, Scikit-Learn. There's some good stuff uh, in R as well, Uh, but um, basically, when you change those subspace. Sometimes when I mention the first feature of or the first three features I talked about, they might work really well with a support vector machine. But the other three features in that top 10 may not. They may do really well with a regularized uh, logistic regression. And so being able to create that diversity is a good thing, especially when we start to ensemble.
0: Okay, so uh, to kind of um, reiterate, memorizing a, a model that memorizer, a memorizing model, is something like a curve fitting model, right? So it fits itself. It. to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that that makes whole sense. And you mentioned Scikit Learn. Is that a CERN tool? I haven't heard of it
1: before. Uh, Scikit Learn is just a Python uh, library. Uh, and so for us, it has a lot of these models that we're talking about. Uh, pretty easy uh, to navigate uh, if you like Python. Uh, it works really, really well. It's got some great pre-processing uh, features, um, and it's it's pretty well uh, developed. Uh, they've got some great core contributors on there that do a great job for the rest of us. Um, so I that's that's one that I use quite a bit. Uh, in the early days, I used to use uh, an R package uh, called caret. It's still a great package. It's just, um, it just depends on kind of what the modeling task is.
0: All right. And we're slowly getting into tools. First question that I love to ask, uh, I call it the million-dollar question, your view on Python versus R. <laughs>
1: um, I think where I'm at today... <laughs> Is I'm a I'm a huge fan I'm a bigger and bigger fan of Python, Um, and the main reason is um, it's a little more intuitive for me, Um, you know, syntactically R um, is just different than what I'm used to. I don't spend enough time in it to just say you know this is home base. Um, The other thing is is uh, the sort of things we're doing nowadays we're really interacting with a lot of web. Uh, interfaces and uh, properties and we're developing our own uh, skins and applications and we've got APIs. I know R can do a lot of that stuff. It seems uh, that there's more developed stuff out there for me to just kind of grab and implement with Python. Uh, I think because it's such a general purpose language uh, that it just allows me to be more productive. I'm a very nuts and bolts kind of guy, Uh, probably not the kind of purist I should be. But, um, you know, in my context, we are a very small organization. So I can't, I can do anything I want in my free time. But when I get into the office, I have to be productive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally appreciate that. And so, what would your advice be for somebody just starting out into the field of data science? Should they uh, learn both or should they just focus on Python and uh, don't worry about R?
1: I think learn both is a great. Uh, solution. I can't tell you the number of times I've read a paper uh, and it's written in C plus plus even, uh, and you go, oh boy, what do you know? And so, just having uh, familiarity with it, I don't want to have knowledge not available to me just because I know only one language I want to make sure and, and and use as much of it as I can and we do I mean we use a lot of I don't say a lot but we use r in in a lot of what we are doing um and sometimes it's it's just um it could be as simple as random forest. and r is different it's a different implementation in python and so it creates even though it's random forest because it's implemented differently, slightly, it creates another family of models, and so we'll go ahead and use both.
0: Love it. Lo- love the um, the idea of uh, limitation, limiting your knowledge, right? So can, um, consciously limiting the knowledge that's available to you. If you learn to one language, and also the um, different models, right? Random forest is f- is called random for a reason, and ra- random algorithms are different in different implementations, and so. I can totally appreciate how you can get different results with that. And so, speaking of tools, are there any other tools that you use or um, would recommend to those in data science or even specifically in the healthcare space?
1: That's a good question. I'm going to talk about a uh, dirty data science secret. I don't know how many people uh, would agree with this, but one of the tools I use is Microsoft Excel. <laughs> wonderful um it's a good standby it's good for rapid prototyping type stuff i mean i'm not i'm not crafting algorithms in there but sometimes even for me to do panda's work uh you know it's easier for me to type a little bit versus having to type three or four lines of code just to come up with the same sort of thing. Um, there's some limitations, obviously, and so uh, I will quickly move over to pandas. But if I'm just trying to get a cursory look, sometimes uh, I find myself spending probably about 15% of my time in Excel. I use Tableau, our team uses Tableau. Uh, for us, we look at, we like Shiny, for example, that's an R type scenario. Um, It's very nice. Um, For us, we just need to be able to be productive. And um, we use Tableau. We've gone through stages on Tableau. Uh, We like to prototype in Tableau. We will deploy in Tableau, but more and more what we're looking to do is quickly iterate with our team in Tableau. Everybody can do their thing there and then get that to a development team or somebody on the data science team to code up um, and make it a little more proprietary um that's that's really helpful um and we have people on our team data science team that are like um that are more r specific um, so specifically in the biostatistics world i mean r is a it's it's got a lot of traction um and so we want to make sure and play uh well with that we have a large university here in our area vanderbilt university uh big biostatistics big r users um and and so we want to make sure and play nice with others so we we try to keep our hands on all those tools
0: yeah totally and uh i can see how the biostatistics uh is po- pop r is popular in that department uh you know speaking of john hopkins university and mm-hmm. all, all those um medical oriented data scientists that are using r it's it's a huge uh following and um, you, you mentioned play nice, and that instantly reminded me of one of the articles that you wrote, uh, Will Healthcare Play Nice with Data Science? And if <laughs> our <laughs> if our listeners haven't read this article, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, so I'm just going to quickly give a background of what's uh, what it talks about. And um, that oftentimes, as Damien says, oftentimes when you're Learning something for a very long time, or uh, when you're uh, very experienced or an expert in a field, and then somebody comes along and tells you their opinion about it, and they don't know anything about your field, you're gonna get irritated. You're gonna get uh, you know aggravated, and you you're gonna feel this turf issue that they're like threatening your territory. And in healthcare, that has happened many times over the years. There are examples with smallpox, when uh, the cure was invented, it wasn't adopted for many years. Cholera, uh, we all know now that it's transferred through um, uh, through the mouth and before the uh, scientists and doctors used to think that it was transferred through the air and uh, that wasn't changed for many years as well. And even washing hands, washing hands for medical practitioners, I was so shocked at this. Semmelweis introduced medical practitioners to ask them to wash um, their hands in 1846 and that was only adopted 130 years later. That is insane. And... <laughs> So, uh, what you're seeing and what the article is about is that will healthcare now allow data science to come in and actually dictate, or or even just advise and give, uh, you know, recommend some changes and some new things. So, I would love for you to share some of your thoughts on that with our listeners.
1: Oh yeah, you know the truth is I live that uh, in healthcare. But the truth is, probably data scientists all over the world are going to be, if they haven't already, encountering those kind of things. You know, the kind of the established domain expert, uh, and then you start leveraging machines uh, the way we do as data scientists. Uh, all of, all of a sudden, it's like, well, how can that be? You know, in healthcare uh, proper. What you have is a a very smart group of people. You have a lot of MDs and PhDs. and In many cases, they've run trials themselves on on some selection of population. Some folks, uh, individuals actually start mining literature, right? They'll do 25, 30 years of literature review, and they're going to boil down everything to four or five rules. And this is uh, like, say, in the case of sepsis. These are the four or five ways we're going to identify sepsis. Well, everybody that's probably listening uh, to this podcast would would agree there's more nuance than four or five rules. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, 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 and so when when you come at it from that point of view of nuance and not these kind of static rules that were established twenty twenty years ago, uh, and and keeping in mind that population shift occurs, right? The, Uh, You know, people change, people get older, people die. Same thing for providers of care. Um, They get smarter, some of them are brand new, nurses leave, you know, all this sort of stuff is happening underneath the data. And if you don't take that into account, people kind of uh, don't appreciate that for the most part. So in the healthcare setting, uh, we have spent probably the last 14 months in that dance of what is um, what is helpful, what is seen as a threat, um, explaining what machine learning is and what data scientists do, how we use data, why we would ever want to create bigger and bigger context with data outside the four walls of a hospital, all these sorts of things. I mean, uh, we the sepsis model... Um, that uh, we've deployed actually doesn't use any clinical values. So I never get any white blood count. I don't have any blood drawn. I never know what the heart rate is or the respiratory rate. But yet we still have a very, very high in the mid-90s area under the curve. Wow,
0: Um, that is so impressive.
1: So, you know, when you talk to a doctor about that or physician, if they don't understand that we're better together. So we we try to have the conversation of, uh, and I could say this on this podcast. We want to have an ensemble. Right. We want to we know we're never going to. We don't see these patients. We're in Brentwood, Tennessee, so we don't see these patients. They are there. They're seeing them for real. And so they're having a modeling uh, aspect. And now what we're talking about is our machine has got a modeling aspect too. So we do well, both of us do really well. What's interesting is because of the diversity of the models, the physician, and then our machine learning algorithm, we actually have a setting where we have an, oh, I should say we have an opportunity to blend those results. And when we blend those, we get so high. I mean, it's like 98% accuracy uh, or area under the curve, if you will, between both parties coming together so it's kind of like um machine learning and uh, providers of healthcare coming together we're we're trying that conversation because uh it's still scary uh I, I mean i recently read an article that said anybody who's touching machine learning or artificial intelligence should be charged uh an artificial intelligence tax that <laughs> money go into a bucket to help all the people that's going to put them out of out of a job oh well, and that's just, that is such hyperbole. It's out of this world. But at the same point, I do think it does say to the rest of the world, you know, it's time to get into some higher order thinking where we can and let the machines leverage what they're good at.
0: That's that's fantastic. And uh, I agree with you on that one, that example of the tax. thats uh, uh, I can understand how people would think that, but, you know, that's one of those things that just slows down progress and keeps us <laughs> where we are. As a civilization, right. and uh, I, I love the example of qualitative. Uh, if I if I may uh, call it that, qualitative plus quantitative. So you've got the machine uh, machine learning as quantitative modeling, and then you've got the doctors who y- y- may have their own approaches, but we'll call it qualitative because it's less quantitative. But you know when you combine the two, and as you say, you leverage this diversity. You create ensembles. Um, and you don't just you know focus on one role but you leverage these different approaches ninety eight percent accuracy you know if if some of our um previous um podcast guests you know like uh, create models for banks and so on if if a bank could get a ninety eight percent accuracy they would they would pay a lot of money for a model like that um and uh, so would you have uh, through all of your experience of um, speaking with um, people who have this sense of a turf issue that you know you're invading their space that data science you know maybe is something new to them through all of your experience of exploring this and uh, you know getting getting the results but going the hard way actually um, fighting your way through to get data science into these uh, fields What would your tips be for somebody who's starting out? Because as you mentioned correctly, every data scientist, not just in healthcare, but everywhere we experience this pushback. So what would your tips be on um, going around that, fighting that, or, you know, finding your way to actually fulfill your role?
1: You know, I I think a lot of it would come down to just try to, as passionate as we are, right? There's a certain level of expertise that we have that we feel like maybe we can't explain because it's just so intuitive. Some of us may uh, have been doing this for a year or two, three years, five years, or or longer, and so um, it's kind of hard sometimes to sit across the table and have somebody with a very strong opinion who's quote, analytical, but for whatever reason, we're not connecting on this data science issue. Um, so what I've had to try and train myself to do, and sometimes I do it better than others <laughs> uh, some days, but um, is really try to understand, keep asking questions why. Why would they be saying this? You know, Why is it that they're saying they already do uh, analytics? Maybe what we need to do is ne- negotiate terminology. What Let's talk about what analytics is. And when, when you kind of step into that in a non-threatening way, let's just say, what do you mean by de- analytics? Um, you might soon find out they're talking about business intelligence reporting. And it's not forecasting, really. It's not predictive. It's not simulation or anything like that. And so when you do that, we can say, oh, I see what you're saying, of course, and and being able to kind of talk about retrospective and prospective and the differences and how you you feel like you've obviously got to have that kind of support from a retrospective first and that sort of thing. The other thing is is I'm learning more and more to try and bring – Um, smaller problems into an organization where we can get some quick wins fast. Uh, Once they get a taste for what can really happen, it is a lot easier to get traction in an organization. So for example, you know, if we went after a really, really sizable problem, I might say, look, that is great. I'm glad we're gonna do that. Can we talk about another problem as well? Something and just flat out say, I want a quick win for us. I want you to see how it works. Uh, and let's talk about it. Some people um, need an explainable model, and so that's important to them. Finding out what is driving them, motivating to have the response is a big, big thing. Um, We found in the case of healthcare, um, you know, think about how long a physician goes to school, right? And then you come in and say, I've got a model. I just started up five minutes ago, and it can predict pretty close to what you can predict. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That, that crushes, it would crush my spirit, right? Um, but it's really not a fair comparison. And so trying to get them to help make those distinctions obvious and keep machine learning in certain aspects of the business where they don't necessarily want to be in. So for example, a lot of them hate putting data entry a physician putting data entry into an electronic medical record and so if a machine can help in those areas and give them more time with their patient that's a good trade-off and so just kind of coming alongside those kind of things but um the the best thing is to just be a persistent listener less talking uh and and really listening to what it is that might be motivating them
0: that's uh, some solid advice and at the end of the day when we think about it like machines can improve certain areas and you know certain like significantly improve certain areas but at the end of the day patients want that come into the uh, facilities they want that human interaction they want somebody to talk to them they want somebody to you know listen them to hear them out we're not at that stage yet of our Uh, development as as humans that we're comfortable completely comfortable talking to a machine like personally i would go into a healthcare facility i would much rather talk to a doctor who can you know understand me empathize with me uh, and things like that so there is always going to be space for doctors and as you say if we can reduce the amount of time they spend doing those things that they don't love as opposed to actually delivering value and uh, sitting with those patients then i think that's an advantage of machine learning and just to sum up the, the three things that you pointed out there for as tips for our listeners who are facing these situations, so try to be non-threatening and uh, try to walk in the shoes and be very understanding of the person that you're speaking with, the stakeholder. Um, give them a taste, so provide a quick win uh, to show them the value that you can actually deliver and find out what drives them. When you find out what people's passions are, what uh, people's drivers are, you, it's much easier uh, to communicate them. Uh, to communicate to them, so those are some uh, some very very good tips from Damien. And uh, another thing I'd like to talk about, so moving on a little bit from this topic, uh, is situational fluency. And uh, we we discussed this a little bit before the podcast. And by that, what we mean is um, how can you think about a problem in terms of data science? How do you decide how to apply data science to a problem? Because knowing the skills, knowing the techniques. Is one thing, but then actually seeing a problem and switching on the right uh, neurological pathways in your brain to come up with the correct way to apply data science is a completely different way. And from your experience, Damien, what would you say? Um, how how do you go about this situation?
1: Yeah. So generally, I try to when we talk with a client, we generally ask them what they're measuring today. Um, in reports, right, in retrospective reports. And the reason we start there is we kind of get a sense for what's important to the organization. Uh, and that is what we want to try to convert to either real time uh, machine learning applications or something that's a little bit more future uh, than real time. Um, also start to understand a little bit where their pain points are, right? So what is it that's a problem for them? Um, I'll give you a healthcare example. So imagine a scenario where you're in an executive meeting and you hear, oh, my goodness, you know, our radiology, right? All the x-ray images, all that sort of stuff is killing us. We are paying uh, these radiologists a half a million dollars a year. They work six hours a day. Uh, they can only do so much it 's a very complex no no kidding, a very complex situation and so what we do is we we can 't really grow the volume of our um you know department uh because we can only afford to bring in one radiologist who wants to live in the middle of nowhere uh America or <laughs> Australia or wherever right and so it 's like boy how do we how do we do this? and and so a lot of companies a lot of healthcare companies uh outsource this to other uh individuals who are qualified across the ocean uh in China or in in, in Asia and and so uh when they come they do all this analysis and when they come in, in the morning the the radiologist reviews that too uh that's not free it costs money it's certainly less but when you think about all that sort of stuff, and as someone who consumes healthcare, one of the things that drives me nuts is having to get this really, really important test to find out if I'm going to die in five minutes or whatever the situation is and really having to wait a week or two weeks. And so how do we speed that up and bring some um, consumer focus in, in a patient experience? And so you could convert that pretty easily to a machine or a computer vision problem, right? So if I had images, that were already annotated by radiologists over the last, I don't know, two, four, five, ten years. Let's take those. Let's train them. Maybe we'd rotate the images so we can kind of synthetically grow that data and get a huge data set for us to be able to get pretty darn close uh, to a physician. And that sort of stuff, now the physician or the radiologist can review that to confer with the machine. And there's no sending overseas. Uh, the cost is negligible. It's whatever it takes for S3 storage on Amazon <laughs> yeah. and whatever yeah. GPU instance you might have. And that's it. And uh, speed up gets really quick. So not necessarily going in those technical terms with your executive team, but being able to say, look, this is how I see this happening. You know, I, Here's where I think we can cut costs and here's why. And we can speed up the process and we can get, decisions out to uh, patients sooner, Um, that sort of stuff in the healthcare world actually catches uh, good attention. uh, And it actually is good for business. So besides just reducing costs, it actually becomes an economic driver. Okay.
0: That's, That's interesting. So you kind of like, you see the problem and then you think of what uplifts and potential benefits you can deliver at the end of the day using, you know, the skills at hand. And then you convey those, but in that case, how do you go about um, like knowing for sure that you can actually deliver this increase in speed or uh, you, this redu- reduction in cost? Uh, you know, like you know certain skills and techniques and tools and data science, but how would you know that uh, with confidence that uh, this is something that you will be able to deliver?
1: So one of the best things I, I think I ever did uh, a number of years ago was join Kaggle, and the reason was. I remember uh, I first kind of got started. I read some. I picked up some magazine somewhere, and they were talking. It was a predictive magazine, and um, it said, "Listen, you know, you've got this Heritage Health Prize. Um, It's a two-year competition. People are trying to model and trying to win big money. See what you can do." And I thought that's really interesting. So I went at it with uh, Microsoft Excel. (laughs) <laughs> initially. And then after about, I don't know, probably seven days of trying to get there, I think I ranked like in the top 2000 or something like that. It was kind of embarrassing, but that was a motivator for me to keep going, to get involved, to kind of understand. The reason why I bring up Kaggle is because Kaggle throws out so many different data sources that I would never, ever touch in just healthcare. So I've done a uh, classification for bioacoustics, for sounds, birds in the wild, and everything else, right? It's whales and retail and all sorts of stuff. The reason why I find that valuable is because you're not just, you're learning at so many different levels when you're on a Kaggle competition. One is you're being exposed to new techniques and diversity, right? There's people all over the world trying to solve this problem. What questions are they answering or asking and answering? And how does that impact my learning when I go out into the, the workforce? The second thing is, is when I started uh, really getting into it, I remember being in some of these board meetings, and in the early days, it was just I knew what I could do, right? And until someone basically said, hey, we think this is a data science thing, it was on me to just sit there and just know what I can do. And that was really not so fulfilling. Um, But when I started to understand, I, I would hear a problem, and I'd go, oh, that's a lot like that bird competition that I was in. And uh, that's interesting. That's a lot like that retail. I was trying to forecast people coming back to make a purchase, and you start kind of understanding how this, how the world works. I don't exactly know anymore, but I think they have about a hundred different competition data sets out there. I know they're adding more and more data sets to open data, uh, which is great. But just getting exposure to that. That's gonna build the confidence. That's gonna because you're gonna know it works. You're gonna see somebody get paid twenty-five, fifty, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They're not gonna let loose of that money unless they know it works. And so being able to drive that back into what you do every day, I think is a huge win. And it's it's a great way to learn.
0: Yeah, totally fantastic. And I completely agree with you. The like Kaggle is a fantastic source of uh this exposure to hands-on experience and hands-on experience in itself is a crucial component of becoming a successful data scientist one thing is to go and learn the tool go and learn you know r or python or tableau or something else learn the techniques as well but that is a completely different story of taking the apply the knowledge that you have and applying it to real-world data sets and case studies and to understand how to use that and moreover not just once not just twice but continuously doing that because if you don't uh, continuously uh, use uh, or find ways to apply your knowledge you're not going to be on the cutting edge of data science data science is evolving so quickly and moving so rapidly that you're going to fall behind and you need a way to test your knowledge a way to find new ways uh, techniques and methodologies and See how they're applied in the real world. So definitely uh, case studies and real-world examples are very handy. So uh, for our listeners Kaggle is a great place to go. Uh, there are other places you can find um, Data sets online to practice with those uh, Also, if you're a part of super data science, we have case studies there. So we focus on that as well on um, uh, Providing the real-world examples because it is so so important. And so I've got a couple of very interesting questions that uh I would really love to ask you because uh you have so uh, such a broad experience in data science, and the first one is what's the biggest challenge you've ever had
1: as a data scientist <laughs> well i I really have to say I think it probably is uh communicating what we do with individuals who either have very little experience with analytics or or have quite a bit of experience with analytics. Um, I know just this week, um, I got some questions from a client of ours. They have a statistician. um, And the questions were really good questions. But the issue became, um, it was a little less about statistics proper and more about what we know as you know data science right so there's this this programming element uh of course there's the math and the stats but you know how does this all relate to healthcare? and how do we know we have a good model and those sort of things and so i'm constantly trying to i constantly think about ways new ways to try to communicate what it is we do in in a specific task uh and make it relatable uh analogies are work really really well um it's just such a kind of a new and emerging thing for a lot of businesses um some people uh think that if they take the b- business intelligence door plate off the department and they just put data science you know they have a data scientist team and it's it's not that way we know that it's a, there's a real approach to data science and so um explaining that three-legged stool is uh is is really really complex for a simple as it should be, but it, if you think about it, when someone at, when you look at a beautiful, you know, sunset, it should be really easy to describe, but it's actually quite hard. And in the same way, that's how I view data science when we talk with other individuals.
0: Oh, fantastic! Now, now, it totally makes sense why you wrote that article, how to explain data science to someone non-technical. Um, and uh, yeah, so our listeners, if you Uh, haven't seen that article, definitely go and check it out on LinkedIn. Damon actually has quite a few articles and um, very interesting reads. So this one is called how to explain data science to someone non-technical. If you ever face that same problem, uh, you'll pick up some great ideas from there. And uh, next question is what is a recent win you can share with us that you've had in your role, something that you're proud of as a data scientist?
1: I think the thing that uh, I'm probably most proud of uh, to date is um, this kind of condition awareness module. Uh, it's a sort of a platform that we've created, and it's what I like about it is it's taking uh, as as kind of a first case a 3,000 year old problem, which has been really really difficult to solve for, and that is the the sepsis. Uh, situations. I mean, we just published an article uh, and it's it's basically a review of just the very definition medically, what it means to be septic. Uh, There's people that argue about that uh, on a very grand scale. And so if we can't identify what the truth is, um, it's hard to identify anything at all. And so being able to come in and create supersets above that uh, kind of f- the fray of what the definitions are and that sort of thing, um, we had to create that ground truth uh, based on a lot of expertise that go beyond our my my knowledge and our group. Um and then we had to figure out data proxies. You know, how could we proxy an outcome or proxy uh a missing field if you think about inferential statistics? There's some imputations that had to be done uh to kind of make smooth it out and and get a, a good model going. Um using a multitude of data sets. I mean, uh we're constantly bringing in uh data sets not only to augment and enrich what we're doing, but um Really uh just trying to know more about any of the problems that we might you know might might be encountering is has really been useful. Um uh, but the thing I think I'm most proud of is taking it from just a model that might produce an, another report to actually having a real world impact. So we've deployed this model in two facilities and it's been very interesting to see so at first, it was we had to meet with a lot of the executive team and kind of what is this and what are you doing? What do you think you can do and all this sort of stuff? And um, being, I, to my point earlier, not being able to use any of the clinical values because it's too late then, um, we actually try to kind of use this. Um, John Tukey, um, he's got a kind of a famous quote. Um, the idea is basically it's it's better to have an approximate answer to the right question um, than to then have like an exact answer to the wrong question. Uh, and to me, the way we translated that was, listen, if I have to wait for my grandmother to come through the emergency department, and then they have to wait in the waiting room, and then they have to see the doctor whenever he can get there, and we have to do clinical values, you have to send off lab results, when and then I can know specifically that this my grandmother has sepsis, You know, in some cases, five hours has passed. Well, um, there's a 7.6% increase in mortality for every hour that passes. So that starts to mound up pretty quick. And and it's not that you can have the best medical facility, the best physician, the best world-class protocol for treating sepsis. But if you don't identify it early, it becomes a huge problem, a huge problem. Uh, in person is more than half dead before you can apply any of that great stuff to them. And so being able to do that all without any kind of lift technically from a facility is a huge win for me and our team here. We've had some great collaborators. We've done a lot of uh, publications around that. It's been a really, um, it's been a fun process. It's been certainly challenging. We've learned a ton throughout that process. And constantly we're trying to, uh, to go back to the, to the other question you asked, we're trying to reframe what it means when we have these results. Uh, so uh, just uh, you know, just coming about it and talking about what we're able to find in those results uh, and the, the level of area under the curve uh, has been really tremendous. And, and we're very excited about the, about the future.
0: Well, Damon, I just I just can only say wow and hats off to you. I can't imagine how many lives you saved with just data science and with that algorithm that you deployed. Seven point six percent increase in mortality per hour. I've been myself at emergency rooms where I had to sit like four hours and and people and then I saw people that had much worse conditions, like uh, something was wrong with with their head or really serious injuries, and they were still sitting for four hours. So. That is so impressive. And um, I, I know it's, it's, it's probably a huge um, study that you've done and we, pro- we won't have enough time to go into detail about it here. But is there any article or publication that you rec- can recommend to our listeners if they would like to learn more about this specific um, case study of sepsis and how you use data science?
1: So uh, on our website at WPCHealthCare.com, there's quite a bit of literature out there. We'll be posting more and more over the next 45 days, uh, specifically the results. Um, We just... uh, published uh, through the International Clinical Pathology Journal, um, the evolving uh, sepsis definition. And uh, that that just was produced, uh, I think, last month. Uh, So that's out there. Um, And then uh, there's some other publications that should be coming online that we're in press on right now. So it, uh, but most of, most all of that's going to be certainly put on WPCHealthcare.com.
0: Fantastic. So, guys, uh, check out WPChealthcare.com if you'd like to learn more about that life changing application of data science. And uh, moving towards the end, um, what is your view of data science right now? Like, from where you stand and from all of your experience, where would you say you think the field of data science is going? And what should our listeners look out for to prepare for data science in the future?
1: I think more and more of what will come is more of the automation. Right, so, um you know, there's been a real big emphasis on the fact that there's not a lot of data scientists out there, uh which I don't know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, but at least that's what the media is saying, and so there's this scarcity, and there's a need to create some synthetic or artificial data scientists, and so some of what we do can be automated absolutely um and so I think we'll see more of that come into our uh, wheelhouse, if you will. And that could be a good thing. Uh, it's much like if we, if we kind of take our own medicine, like we were talking about with the doctor, maybe there's some things we don't necessarily want to do in data science. And there's other things that we're interested in doing. Um, I think there'll probably be, you know, three major things that'll show up in the next, I would call it maybe five years. One is, can you can, you know, as, as, as a way to kind of prevent kind of being automated out of data science. I think you'd have to think along the lines of, can I convert a business problem into a data science problem? I mean, right now, if you think about IBM Watson and some of these other big kind of cognitive platforms, they're really great, right? It's really exciting times. But there's there's a couple hangups. One is if you can't get the data to them, they can't do any of that stuff. And so figuring out how to get to your data, that's become that's the new bottleneck. Uh, it 's not crunch time on the numbers and that sort of thing, so that 's that 's going to be an interesting thing uh, to kind of overcome. You know the other thing is is trying to create targets, so we talked about creating uh, data science solutions from business problems if you don 't know how to create a target, something you want to predict that 's not obvious, I think that you'll will have a difficult time in the future with data science I think that 'll become I I really think in, even in a meeting on your own, uh, e- depending on what your role is with the company, thinking through how would I make this a data science problem is a good um, mental experiment that you can do. You never have to share with anybody, um, but it's a way for you to start doing some brain training on how to think machine learning in the world. And that's very, very powerful. If you can't implement these data science solutions, I think that'll be another struggle. The the third one, which I think is gonna be everybody's future field day, uh, if you have the IBMs of the world and some of these other data science uh, players come in and, and they start automating, to, it's gonna set everybody's floor, at, let's call it 80% area under the curve. The new gold will be trying to move it from 80% to 85, 86, 87% and so you're going to have to have developed techniques on feature engineering and how to work with data and some of the stuff we talked about subsetting, subspace, ensemble, all these sorts of things uh to be able to get yourself the lift that you need because Today, people will pay from going from 50 to 85%. That's huge. That means lots of money in a lot of cases. We'll a lot of saved lives. Uh, in the future, I think you'll see those margins sh- shrink, or those percents shrink, but they're still going to want to pay for them.
0: I agree with that completely. Uh, and just to summarize uh, the points that you mentioned, so getting, uh, getting the data, that's always going to be valuable. Machines can't uh, make their predictions unless you give them the data. Uh, finding your target Uh, of your data science exercise Uh, that is also very valuable especially if it's an obvious to understand where how you want to uh, what what the end outcome should be and uh, there's uh, damon i love the mental experience experiment you mentioned Uh, you just sit in any meeting or in any conversation uh, and you just think how can i turn this into a machine learning problem and i'm i'm totally going to do this even just going to a social event i'm just going to sit there and think how can i turn this into a machine learning problem um and, uh, find, and and it's funny how like you know sometimes you get so carried away into data science then you go out into the real world and people think start thinking that you, or telling you even that you're a machine or you like you think <laughs> like a machine <laughs> so that's even going to exaggerate that even more and finally the 80 to 85% so right now Big money is in taking something from 50%, so basically flipping a coin to 80%, but uh, look out for ways or start preparing for the future, start creating models, start thinking of ways to take it from 80 to 85%, and lucky for our listeners, we already discussed a couple of these methods, uh, subsetting, ensemble, and so on in this podcast, so there you go, you've got a head start. And um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, How can our listeners contact you or follow you or follow your career or read your articles if uh, they would like to know more about uh, what you're up to in the world?
1: Oh, yeah. No, uh, LinkedIn is a great place uh, to connect with me. I uh, usually post quite a few articles out there. love to make connections with uh, data scientists or people who appreciate data science all around the world. Twitter is another uh, another place. So that's just damianmingle.com or excuse me, Damien Mingle. And then, uh, of course, wpchealthcare.com is great. And then, of course, uh, if people want to reach out via email, they're more than welcome to email me, dmingle, at WPCHealthcare.com. Be happy to start up a conversation.
0: All right. Thank you so much. And uh, um, there you go, guys. We'll include all of those links uh, in the show notes. But right now, if you still still want to become a super data scientist and learn more from Damien, go to Twitter right now and find him at Damien Mingle and follow Uh, everything he has to share and follow his career. And one final question for you, Damien: What is your one favorite book that can help our listeners become better data scientists?
1: Uh, um, You know, uh, The Grammar of Science uh, by Carl Pearson is an oldie, uh, but a a goodie. He was a professor of applied mathematics uh, in London. Uh, but uh, that book actually went on to inspire Albert Einstein. So I always try to see if I can get any kind of Einstein uh, fairy dust. Uh, I try to review that once a year. It's an, it's a real old book, uh, but the idea is to try and think about science in a more comprehensive way and see, see the interactions for what they are, looking at space and time and all that sort of stuff, trying to bring that into data science I think uh, would be hugely helpful in a very scientific way.
0: Oh, fantastic anything that inspired einstein is uh, is definitely going to be a good read so uh, guys pick up grammar of science when you have a chance it might inspire you to change the world all right so thank you so much damien for coming on the show really appreciate you taking the time and sharing this with our listeners this has been a tremendous experience and you have delivered so much value to us thank you so much
1: thank you my pleasure so there you
0: have it. That was Damien Mingle, chief data scientist at WPC Healthcare. Super exciting episode. I hope you learned a lot because personally I learned so much from Damien. The most impressive by far was the application of data science to actually save lives. This has been an eye-opening experience for me to witness firsthand that there are people out there that not only deliver business value and other types of values in the world using data science but actually save people's lives. When every hour counts, when every minute counts, data science can come in and be that little difference that will help a person stay alive. Um, Other things that I picked up from this episode, of course, the combining of qualitative Uh, research and knowledge and quantitative data science in order to come up with the most powerful models in the world. I mean, like 95% accuracy, that is unheard of. That is very, very powerful. And of course, that is super valuable, especially in the area of medicine. And I was also intrigued by Damien's view of the future of data science, where creating models with 80% accuracy is going to be normal. People are going to want models with 85% accuracy, with 90% accuracy, with 95% accuracy. So looking into advanced modeling techniques such as ensemble methods and combining qualitative and quantitative data and other methods we discussed in this podcast is definitely a worthwhile exercise. So there you go. Uh, make sure to look up Damien on uh, Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Damien Mingle, spelled at D-A-M-I-A-N. M I N G L E and follow Damien so you can get his latest articles and news and see what he's up to in the world. Also visit slash 13 to get the links and show notes for this episode. You can also download the transcript and also you'll get Damien's LinkedIn URL and some of his other articles that we discussed in this podcast episode and uh, I really appreciate you thank you so much for following the show can't wait to see you on the next episode and until next time happy analyzing